Good evening. Goodbye Forever by Nat Chang Rinpoche. Chapter 11, Part 2. Times had changed and it seemed that I was always doing the right thing in my father's eyes. Emptiness happens. The embattled father and son scenario of 16 years had evaporated. It was organised that I'd bring Graham home on my motorcycle and that would save the rearrangement of his travel home. Wilhelmina's husband had picked him up and was to have brought him home. He often had work in Britain connected with refrigeration or some such thing. And so his business trips marked the start and finish of Graham's incarceration in a slightly more commodious version of Colditz. And so my journey was planned. I'd spend a night with my Aunt Ivy in Gillingham and call in on Uncle Bert and Aunt Elsie. Uncle Bert had been a keen motorcyclist in his younger days and had a remarkable pair of World War II military leather motorcycle panniers. My uncle chuckled about my strange motorcycle. We're going to have to make up some special brackets for your creation. I think I may have some brass doorstep edging and stair rods that might serve. It turned out that my uncle was also something of an engineer. He'd not taken the same academic route in the army as my father and had remained at the tooling shop end of engineering. My father was always fairly nifty as a handyman, but Uncle Bert was a genius. He examined my motorcycle and made a few drawings with precise measurements and within three hours I had a robust yet elegant set of brackets. As he finished each piece I set to work with wet and dry abrasive papers, Solvol Autosol Chrome Polish and finally Brasso and the brackets gleamed in the evening sun. Uncle Bert was as impressed with my polishing as I was with his engineering prowess. I was always amazed with the way that phenomena could be brought into being. Even when I was part of the act of creation, the creation was still some kind of miracle. There was no God, but every creative human being, every artist, was some kind of God. Creativity was a natural phenomenon that pulsed in us all and our role as beings was to allow that to surface from the primal ocean of existence. Uncle Bert and I had a fine conversation whilst working, and then he and Aunt Elsie joined me at Aunt Ivy's for a dinner of roast lamb with all the trimmings. I needed the panniers in order to bring Graham home from Germany as I had to be able to stow my own baggage in them and attach his suitcase to the sissy bars. 
Those panniers came in extremely useful over the years and I made sure to lavish great attention on them whenever they got wet. The leather from which they were constructed was amazing stuff, a quarter of an inch thick, at least, with a deep grain and a wonderful patina. I have always taken great care of leather, remembering that it was once the skin of an animal. I have always had the impulse to respect that and to make sure that it endures. Were everyone to take adequate care of leather goods, they would last for generations. The journey to Hanover was easy for the most part. I enjoyed the ferry crossing from Dover to Ostend. Belgium assailed me with faecal aromas that nearly made me cross-eyed with their intensity. The stench changed every few miles and I was aghast at how many different versions of vile there could be. I was not unhappy when I left that olfactory version of hell behind. In terms of getting to Germany, I had some insane idea of riding through the night in order to arrive for breakfast. But my concept of my own stamina and endurance proved to be a trifle exaggerated. I'd been purring along the autobahn at a pleasant 70 miles per hour when I dreamed that I was in Farnham Park. I'd tripped over something or other and was falling in slow motion toward the ground. When I hit the ground, it was surprisingly soft and I bounced back up again, but very slowly. When I'd bounced up to approximately 30 degrees, I started to drift back in the direction of the ground again. Then I'd bounce up again and the pattern repeated. I was just enjoying this amusing aspect of the dream when my visual field ignited. There was a flash of intense light in which the white lady appeared. She was there for a fraction of a second. I'd opened my eyes immediately I saw that light because it felt as if I was staring into the headlights of an oncoming car. But as soon as I opened my eyes, the white lady was the first image I saw. Then she was gone and there was an empty autobahn. Maybe it had been a car's headlights I'd seen. I realised when I opened my eyes, that I'd been drifting into the central reservation of the autobahn, clipping the curb with a soft thud and then drifting out again. It was the sudden vision of the white lady or the headlights of a car that had woken me. There was no sign of a car in the distance behind me, but I could not be sure. It could have been travelling at high speed, but would I not have heard it in the distance? 
it would have to remain a mystery. I'd been asleep for maybe four or five brushes with the central reservation. This was obviously not a desirable situation. So, still partially asleep, I pulled my motorcycle onto the grassy strip in the middle of the autobahn. When I stopped in the central reservation, it was utterly dark and silent. Being discombobulated by tiredness, I mistook the central reservation for the left-hand verge, as it would have been on a British motorway. I just about managed to pull the machine onto its stand and unwind my father's old army sleeping bag from the sissy bars. I'd only brought the thing to protect the devil from the elements, but I was grateful to buckle the thing around me and lose consciousness. I awoke in a different setting altogether. Cars were flashing by on either side of me, and a member of the Deutsche Polizei was demanding, Aufwachen! Aufwachen! Was machen Sie hier? I smiled sheepishly and replied in faltering German, Entschuldigung, aber ich war so müde, um weiter zu waren. The motorcycle policeman was a kind fellow, however. He simply shook his head as if to say idiot and said, Ja, Engländer. Ja, na klar, wer auch sonst? He checked my passport driving license and insurance papers. Then he stopped the traffic till I got to the other side of the road. He waited till I'd wrapped the devil in the army sleeping bag and secured it to the sissy bars before slowing the traffic so I could head out on the autobahn again. I was touched by the kindness of the German policeman as he could have fined me or whatever happens to a person who sleeps in the central reservation on the autobahn. The incident reminded me of the inherent goodness of human beings, the primal goodness that is the basis of sentience. After only a few miles, I came upon an autobahn Rastetter and ate two hearty breakfasts and drank a pint of coffee. I was now feeling fit to ride through Germany, Poland and on through Russia into Mongolia. But then I never had much sense when it came to limitations. The interlude in which I fell asleep at 70 miles an hour on my motorcycle made me ponder on the nature of dream yoga. I'd read the Evans Vents book on Tibetan yogas and was familiar with the idea of milam or dream yoga. So I wondered about my state of consciousness. Was I only partially asleep or partially awake or fluctuating between sleep and wakefulness? What was that? 
did the dream become a dream in which I had awareness or what happened? I'd seen the white lady. She kept appearing at different points in my life. It had occurred to me years earlier that she must have some sort of existence outside my imagination. Was it possible that she had appeared in order to protect me? Was that possible? Was she some sort of Buddhist guardian angel? Were there Buddhist guardian angels? There were protectors, but they had to be invoked and one had to be a Lama to invoke them. Any Tobgyal, Deiki or Tashi couldn't summon them. I would need to ask someone about this at some point, but there were no Tibetan Lamas in Britain as far as I knew, even at the Buddhist Society in London. This was a notion that I was going to have to put on one side and return to it if I ever managed to get out to the Himalayas. The question I could more realistically ponder was how I'd managed to remain seated on a two-wheeled vehicle in the sleep state. I had tried to apply something of what I had read about Milam, but met with a little success. I'd had many moments of clarity within dreams when I knew I was dreaming, but these experiences were scattered and of no great duration. Three or four nights a month was the best I ever achieved at that time. I had struggled through other books by Evans Bentz, but found them all to be rather hard work. I decided that such books required at least a dozen readings each to glean anything from them. Still, in for a penny, in for a pound. I was determined to penetrate these texts and develop my understanding of Vajrayana. The idea of Milam moved through my mind as I rode. The time passed surprisingly quickly, but when I arrived in Arten in the early evening, I was no closer to an understanding of my dream experience. Arten was a large village near Hanover, where my uncle and aunt, Richten and Arnold Ratman, lived. Graham was to arrive two days later, as Horst Ribbenhacher, Wilhelmina's cranky husband, could not arrange to take him to Arten any earlier. That was a nuisance. But Tante Richten advised me that the length of my hair would be a problem with Herr Horst Ribbenhacker. He was politically slightly right of Goebbels and wouldn't allow Graham to ride on the back of a motorcycle with a hippie, even though I was his brother and was taking him home. Nothing had been said to Herr Ribbenhacker of the plan for me to take him home on my motorcycle, or Graham would have had to have seen out the duration of his confinement. Herr Ribbenhacker's opinion of me 
having seen a photograph, was that I should be in prison hanging chained to a wall. A year previously, I suppose, my father would have been of the same opinion. But times had changed.